You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and David Story. The time has come for America to hear the truth. Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, David Story. It is Saturday, September 18th, 2021, and we're broadcasting live online on YouTube. As a reminder, we are on a temporary hiatus from broadcasting on our usual FM radio home of WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area, while our lead host, Jacob Morrison, is working out of town on Hurricane Ida recovery efforts. Today, we are talking about the last few weeks in Southern labor, courtesy of Jonah Furman's great newsletter, Who Gets the Bird? We'll highlight some of the big national labor stories. We'll touch on a few local interesting uh, news items here in North Alabama. All that and more on today's Valley Labor Report. And remember, folks, if you want to see what we're up to throughout the week, Get our snide clips about the news of the day, then follow us on social media, facebook.com slash the Valley Labor Report, Twitter at Labor Reporters, Jacob's on there at Jacob M underscore AL, and David's on there at Radical Unionist. If you missed part of the show and want to go back and watch it later, search YouTube for the Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there, and we also clip segments throughout the week. We upload our program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So to see if we're on your listening platform of choice, go to thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. We do have a website, thevalleylaborreport.org, where you could buy our hats and stickers. Uh, We do hope to get some new merch available once Jacob has returned and we are considering ourselves back at full full strength. And if you appreciate our work and you want to keep us on the air, we would normally ask that you consider throwing us a couple of bucks on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. I do believe our Patreon donations have been paused while we're in this semi-hiatus. But if you believe in this project, you can still help us for free by subscribing to our YouTube channel, liking and sharing our videos, leaving good reviews on our podcast, and all the other ways of boosting our social media. The more likes, shares, and subscriptions we have, the more visible our content will be to new folks. And we now have a pretty extensive back catalog of both full episodes and specific interviews and topical segments that we hope are entertaining and educational. So, good morning, folks. Uh, Good morning, David. Thanks for getting us set up this morning. Again, as if you didn't hear us in the uh, start, we are still, uh, I guess we are maybe week two in our semi-hiatus. Our brother Jacob Morrison is down in uh, the Gulf Coast region helping with Hurricane Ida recovery efforts. So in the meantime, we are taking a break from our FM uh, radio broadcast, but we are still going to be bringing some online content. Uh, to the extent that uh, David and I can do that. Uh, We are no uh, replacement for Jacob, of course, but we're going to still try to bring you some news. Uh, And today we really wanted to catch everybody up on some of the activity with the National Labor Relations Board, 
some elections that have happened in unions, some big stories that we have coming out of uh, John Deere, Nabisco. Uh, we have some union busting stories that have made it into national news. And then there were a few local uh, issues that I wanted to highlight and just kind of bring out there. I know some of you watching and listening today, you may not be anywhere near North Alabama. Uh, so some of the names may not be familiar to you, but uh, a lot of the themes and the, the content will be because it's, you know, it's pretty universal. Uh, workers getting screwed, politicians being crooked, police being violent. Uh, the American story. So, uh, David, thanks for getting us all set up. Um, I wanted to start with uh, Southern labor, if that is cool with you and just sort of see where we're at with uh, new organizing and election wins across the South. Y'all who have been uh, fans for a while know that we've been using Jonah Furman's uh, newsletter, Who Gets the Bird? Uh, usually comes out every Thursday. I really, really recommend you subscribe if you don't already. Uh, typically, we try to highlight the activity from across the Southeast. And of course, you can check his newsletter for the full uh, report that he does every week about, you know, any and all NLRB activity, plus some other uh, union highlights. Uh, we haven't done this in a few weeks because of uh, the way our scheduling has, has gone. So wanted to uh, catch, us, catch us up from August, mid-August to uh, really early September on what's happening across the South. And uh, before I begin, I do want to send our thanks to Jonah for allowing us to use his material and also uh, congratulations to him. I don't think we've uh, mentioned on the show yet, but Jonah has been hired by Labor Notes. And I think that is a great, great partnership because uh, most of you who listen to this show, you know, Labor Notes does amazing work for the labor movement with research, reporting, uh, training, resources, conferences. So I think it's cool that one of the best labor reporters out there, Jonah, is going to be hooked up with them and, and added to their team. So that's a great thing. Uh, I'm expecting, uh, you know, even more good work to come out of labor notes now that Jonah's on board. So let's get right to it with new organizing. I'm going to start back in August and kind of catch us all the way up. So I'll go through uh, our new organizing and then some wins and strikes and, and then move forward chronologically. So starting back in August 19th through August 26th, we did have new organizing that uh, David will be very happy about. There were 162 workers at Viscose, which is a massive saucers casing food processing company, and they are organizing with the Machinist Union. Shout out, Machinist. That was if over in Arkansas, right? Yeah, yeah. And apparently, if successful, it'll be the biggest uh, NLRB win in Arkansas in a couple years uh, and uh, really one of the biggest uh, wins in, I think they said, since 2007 biggest NRB win. So uh, way to go, Machinist, making some progress out in Arkansas. Best of luck with that campaign. There were 56 workers in Crystal City, Virginia, who work at a rock climbing gym called Earth Treks. They are unionizing with the Mid-Atlantic Regional Joint Board of Workers United. It's kind of a mouthful. Um, 
Over in some smaller shops in Austin, Texas, you had 15 security guards there that joined the SPFPA. Uh, we see them pop up a lot, primarily with just security. There are four lab workers uh, for chemical manufacturer Kimors in Bell, West Virginia, where workers recently sued over their firings related to whistleblowing about environmental and workplace safety. They are joining the mine workers, and it sounds like they damn sure need a union. Uh, if it's gotten to that point. There were three aircraft mechanics for Invictus and three more at Amentum, both in Nashville, that are joining the machinists, local SC-711, as are two flight instructors in Miami. So some more uh, activity there out of the machinists. Moving on to some election wins, uh, the board finally did count the ballots, the impounded ballots, and the Collectivo Coffee Union vote uh, back in April. And by a margin of seven votes, IBEW Local 494 now represents 328 cafe, bakery, and warehouse workers across Chicago, Madison, and Milwaukee. No, that is not the South, but uh, the Collectivo Coffee Union vote was kind of a big one, uh, primarily because of this theme we've encountered on our show uh, and a lot of the campaigns we've covered, this dichotomy between, you know, liberal uh, progressive sounding language coming from the company uh, that is quickly exposed for a bunch of BS as soon as the workers try to organize. Uh, there was a similar, uh, you know, in a similar vein, I guess you could say, 322 editorial employees at MSNBC did vote 141 to 58 to join the WGAE. Um, now, I know there's been a lot of internal uh political battles inside of that union about what kind of workers they should uh, be bringing in. And in fact, their incumbent president thought they were bringing in too many workers to the union, which is not a very common complaint you hear from union leaders having too many members. But uh, we've, we've talked about the MSNBC campaign on the show before. And as I said before, I do hope that that improves the uh, nature of their content, though I won't hold out much hope. I am glad they have a union. There are 17 drivers and service techs down in Acala, Florida, working for Amerigas Propane that have organized. Uh, and let's see, I believe that is with the Teamsters, Local 79. Uh, there's also a, some more work by the Teamsters. Let's see here. Seven mechanics for Intermodal Mexico have also joined the Teamsters with Local 79. And that is down in Port Everglades and Miami Springs, Florida. And there were also four workers who processed limestone in Macon, Georgia, who voted three to one to join the steel workers. So several wins in some really small shops. Uh, there was a loss in a small shop. 22 drivers for chemical maker Univar in Houston voted 10 to 12 not to join Teamsters Local 988. And I believe later on, uh, as we get a little more recent, there's some more activity in that same Univar company in Houston. So a couple of the strikes that we'll get back to uh, would be the Nabisco strike, uh, which did spread across all of their production facilities, uh, as well as uh, the long-running St. Vincent Hospital strike, uh, which I believe is the longest strike in Massachusetts history now. Uh, hopefully we'll have a little bit of update there later, 
And also wanted to mention the Harvard graduate student, W Local 5118. And we've talked with some grad student. Uh, Jonah believes, if anything, we should be surprised if a strike does not happen with the Harvard grad student union. So that's also something to keep your eye on. Uh, curious to see how the Harvard administration responds to that. And, you know, another, again, more national one, but I think that's relevant to all of us as we enter the holidays is in Southwest Airlines. The Southwest Airline Pilots Association, which is an independent union of about 10,000 pilots, along with TWU Local 50, uh, 556, who represents the flight attendants there at Southwest, they are talking about doing some informational pickets around the holidays to protest understaffing, as well as other operational failures, like lack of hotels and food for workers, uh, which I imagine during the holidays is going to suck even worse. Uh, I think that's a pretty uh, good idea to do your informational picket at the busiest time of the airports uh, when you have a you have a captive audience and this instead of the traditional captive audience we think of with union busted meetings. Uh, in this case, the workers will have something of a captive audience with a lot of, uh, you know, civilians sleeping in the airports, waiting in the airports and long lines and uh, on uncomfortable chairs. And hopefully that'll give them opportunity to uh, have some good conversations with the customers as they build support for their campaign. Uh, there's similar issues at American Airlines. And of course, uh, we've all seen news stories of flight attendants taking a lot of abuse from passengers as of late. Uh, some airlines are being more restrictive about alcohol use on the plane because it's gotten so bad with, you know, with folks getting on there and just acting like total jackasses uh, to their flight attendants. Where David, correct me if I'm wrong about this. Maybe you saw this story. I'm pretty sure they actually had to duct tape somebody not too long ago. They had to duct tape a drunk, unruly pastor, passenger to his chair uh, because he was being sexually harassed, harassing of the flight attendants. So I uh, want to move on to uh, some more recent Southern labor activity, getting us into the month of September. Uh, there were 17 workers over in Garland, Texas, but at Univar, so the same uh, company that we just saw in Houston that voted against joining the Teamsters. Well, over in Garland, pretty close by, they are organizing with the Operating Engineers Local 564. There are two workers for Arbormetric Solutions, which appears to be a staffing agency providing utility workers to Kentucky Power and Appalachian Power up in Hazard, Kentucky, and they are joining IBEW Local 369. So where two or more workers gather, you can have a union, and uh, that's proof of that. Shout out to those two. In an election win, there were 57 security guards for WellPath, uh, which is a medical facility associated with the jails down in Florida City, Florida, and they voted 22 to nothing to join the SPFPA. There were nine workers at steel and aluminum supplier EMJ Metals in Orlando, which voted five to four to join the steel workers. Nine security guards in Hapeville, Georgia, joined UGSO Local 291, uh, voted eight to nothing there. And moving forward to some other Southern activities, 
that got us into the month of September. Uh, a couple of other activities before we get to some more uh, new organizing and election wins. Uh, worth remembering that ATU Local 1031 in Beaumont, Beaumont Texas uh, has been without a contract for about a year. Those are transit workers, and uh, they have been appealing to their city council, hoping to get some uh, help and negotiations with First Transit. Uh, we'll see if we have any uh, updates here in the next couple of weeks about that. There were uh, firefighters on strike in Alexandria, Virginia, which if you're not familiar with that, it's kind of a suburb of D.C. It's a pretty wealthy suburban area. Lots of folks who work in, uh, you know, the Beltway political class. Well, the firefighters there uh, have their first ever union contract and their first increase in base pay since 2008, uh, which is pretty awesome. And uh, public sector collective bargaining is something that was legalized recently in Virginia. And what you're seeing is industry by industry and local by local, they're having to fight uh, to obtain these first contracts. But where they do, they're making some real gains. So I think that's awesome to see out of Virginia. Uh, and, you know, kudos to the firefighters and teachers and all the other government employees who are organizing there, taking advantage of this new opportunity. Elsewhere in Virginia, there were 3,100 UFCW members uh, across 21 Kroger stores who approved a new contract by a pretty wide margin, with the biggest win appearing to be that they kept their current health care plan. Uh, starting wages went up to 12.35 an hour. We also saw uh, some organizing in Missouri with 2,800 pork processing workers for Triumph Foods, which is based in St. Joseph, Missouri. They are all getting a raise through a new agreement with UFCW, uh, this time Local 2. And they're raising their starting wage to $20 an hour, which is uh, not bad, relatively speaking, for meatpacking workers. So way to go, guys. And uh, St. Joseph, Missouri. All right, moving forward. Uh, in San, San Antonio, there was some more developments with the police union there. And now I know police unions are a controversial uh, issue here in the labor movement. Uh, there's some debate about whether or not they really count as a labor union. Uh, but to the extent that you include them, uh, they did uh, beat a ballot measure that would have revo revoked their collective bargaining rights in San Antonio, Texas. So the police union doesn't have a contract there. It uh, looks like there's a lot of dispute between the city and the union on disciplinary procedures for the police. Uh, so that's one of those really uh, controversial and you know interesting angles to the labor movement where you see unionism intersects with criminal justice. And I'll mention criminal justice later from the local perspective, uh, but something to keep your eye on as uh, yeah, not really controversial on our part, not controversial on our part. No, uh, not at all. Uh, but even, you know, the union I belong to previously a national staff organization that we've covered here on the show uh, represents some, uh, Prison guards, one of the kind of strange uh, industries that got into our union. So there's a lot of debate about whether border, border patrol, security guards, 
uh, prison guards, police officers, are they all the same? Uh, which ones should we really include in the labor movement, if any? Um, I, you know, those are good conversations to have as we all talk about how to reform the police and, and really protect the people from the police. Uh, moving forward, I uh, do want to mention uh, in the Texas, there was, a, I guess, what sounds like a good uh, development in Texas for K-12 education retirees. There is a, the legislature in Texas has advanced a bill to give a one-time $2,400 check to all the retired educators. Uh, but according to Jonah, it sounds nice, but it really isn't, considering the alternative proposal was an actual true cost of living increase across the board. And retirees there in Texas haven't seen a COLA, or cost of living increase, in eight years. A uh, very similar story here in Alabama. We've seen these bonus checks from time to time for all the K-12 uh, education retirees, but a COLA where they actually have some percentage increase in retirement benefits to keep up with cost of living. That seems to be pretty much off the table uh, in Alabama and, and many states, unfortunately. Uh, moving forward, I know that uh, this is a little bit of a national uh, story, but SAG and AFTRA, the two uh, major unions for uh, entertainers, for Hollywood actors, uh, they've had a very uh, contentious election between Fran Drescher uh, and I believe uh, Matthew Modine was the uh, was the other candidate there. Uh, from what I understand, there's been no clear victory for either side. And so that will catch us up to more recently, uh, last week in September, I want to mention that there was a new organizing, a new election filing in Prattville, Alabama, uh, only less about three hours from here or so, uh, depending on where you're heading from. 26 workers who make brake pads for the Brazilian auto parts company, Frosley in Prattville, they are organizing with the RWDSU Mid-South Council, the same RWDSU from Bamazon fame. Uh, so Shout out to them, uh, wishing them a lot of luck with that new organizing campaign. Looking through, there wasn't a ton of activity across the Southeast with at least new organizing campaigns or elections. Uh, there was a lot of activity across the country, just not a lot happening here in the South. And I wanted to see if we have any other pressing ones. I don't think so. Um, most of the activity seems to be concentrated either out west uh, on the West Coast or in the New England area uh, with some major higher education activity happening up in Michigan. Uh, you had several union contracts that were up for a vote in Michigan recently. Uh, and there was actually a, a two day strike at Oakland University up in Michigan. So. Michigan's got a lot of higher ed uh, contract battles and, and strikes uh, that are coming to a close. Outside of that, I'm not seeing a lot of activity in the South. Were there any uh, new campaigns, new organizing maybe that you're familiar with in the Southeast that we haven't included? Uh, feel free to comment in, let us know. Um, would definitely like to know about it. Let's see, it looks like... Um, 
we did have a, a comment that we oh Pierre has filed a ULP um, or at least someone has filed a UA, ULP and a lawsuit against Walmart. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Pierre is from Indiana, so. Pierre is one of those hard-hitting members. He's, yeah. he's been with us basically from the beginning, and he's he's very active in organizing. So, I, Well, keep us posted on that for sure, how the ULP plays out. You know, it can be a long, tiresome uh, process, uh, but stay patient and, and definitely keep us posted on that. Uh, David, uh, did you have any uh, – Union activity from the southeast that I may have mentioned. I mean, may have not mentioned. No, I mean, you've. It looks like you've covered it all. You know, our. I'll say as a personal point of personal privilege here, our members are gearing up to go into negotiations in about uh, what is this September? About five months. So, actually, we'll be going down to the Cape at the end of this month. Yeah, my, I got uh, five brothers is heading down there this, not this Saturday, but next Saturday. Yeah, a week from today to uh, start negotiating prep. Okay, yeah. And uh, we've talked a little bit about this on the show before, how much prep and training is, is goes into Ooh. trying to negotiate the contract, um, you know, Folks don't just roll out of bed and walk to the bargaining table and and, and pull it out of their rear end. Uh, it takes a lot of homework, a lot of research, a lot of time and effort and energy uh, before you even make it to the first negotiations. Yeah. yeah. You've done a lot yeah. of math. Um, I remember the first bargaining chair uh, that I dealt with. She was, well, no, she was not our bargaining chair. She was maybe kind of our budget guru. And she had pieces of paper taped all along the wall because <laughs> she couldn't even find chart paper big enough to do all the math she was doing in terms of salary adjustments, um, health care premiums and retirement contributions. It, it made my head hurt just looking at it. Uh, yeah. So you gotta you gotta have some folks with some math skills. You gotta have, of course, your uh, your smart readers who can catch little details. You've gotta have the folks who are actually good at negotiation and having the conversations. There's a lot of different skills that come to the bargaining team that are necessary to be successful. Yeah. Well, I mean, luckily in the machinist unit, we're we're very lucky. Uh, up in Maryland, we've got what we call a strategic res- strategic resources department, and it, they're compromised of labor lawyers, uh, and, what do you call it, financial uh, specialists, whatever you call these people. And, and basically, we do a survey. They do all the information requests, and then uh, they compile all the data and send it back to us. Uh, it's it's really good. That's that's huge, and I think that's why um, you know as much as I love to see it when workers are out kind of doing their own organizing without relying on outside unions uh, because you don't necessarily. Man, it could really uh, it could be helpful because trying to do all of that on your own on your free time, right outside of work. That's 
it's very difficult. And of course, the bosses typically have a big advantage there. Yeah, um, well, and it's they, difficult for people to, you know, average healthcare costs and estimate healthcare costs through the life of the contract and figure out what the hourly rate or what the hourly cost of this healthcare uh, is going to be, you know, throughout the life and things like that. Not saying that we don't have some very smart members, but, you know, when you've got these financial advisors that that's what they're paid to do. And right. within about, you know, the company makes a offer. Uh, our members will come in and basically negotiate the contract with the with the company. It takes about two weeks and then, you know, come back and and present to the membership what we've what we've negotiated and let them vote on it and a majority wins you know the wonderful thing about democracy right and you know what um if you're on the losing side of that contract fight you still had your you still had your vote um and you can certainly feel free for the next two years three years however long the contract exists every time you're uh, griping and moaning about it you could tell people, hey, I voted no. But here's why. Um, and you can be building your your support for uh, what language needs to get put in the next contract. Yeah. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, you got to kind of learn from where you went wrong to know what to do better the next time. And um, something that I participated in uh, through NSO as a bargaining team member was we had these coordinated bargaining councils, I believe is what they're called. And basically, we would all get together, the bargaining teams from the different states, and break down by region. So, you know, our our Yankee sisters and brothers in the Northeast would all gather together. Those of us in the South would gather together. If you had comparable cost of living and and, uh, employers, and we would actually bust out our contracts and compare notes, we would... uh, you know, compare the the specific language on leave provisions and things of that nature. And that was also incredibly helpful. Uh, So there again, having a national union where you do have folks in other areas who've already, you know, maybe they negotiated their contracts six months ago or a year ago under similar conditions. And then you can, you can check your notes, uh, learn maybe from where they, you know, messed up uh, perhaps or learned from where they really had some wins. That's a big, big resource that if you're trying to do it completely on your own, it's going to be a struggle. It's not impossible by any means. Uh, Cause something else that I've learned on, you know, throughout my experience is that uh, sometimes these folks in management aren't nearly as smart as they think they are. Um, same with, the lawyers and, and, you know, the union busters or our experts that they bring in on their side of the table, all those degrees and all those credentials don't necessarily uh, make them uh, invincible or intelligent <laughs> compared to you. Honestly, uh, sometimes there's just common sense that you have that they lack. So don't, don't feel intimidated. Uh, even if you are uh, working without the great national support that, you know, some unions provide. 
No, I mean, that's something that y'all talk about consistently on the radio is the fact that, you know, the bosses don't know how to organize the workplace. Uh, The workers know best how to organize the workplace, how to get the work done, how to get it get it done efficiently and out the door. Uh, And, you know, that's a struggle constantly with every union is uh, the distrust that the management has with the workers on the floor, you know, and and the consistent talking points of the union is, uh, you know, we can, we can, we can show you how to do this more efficiently uh, and save money to, and 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 that's what we're trying to do: save money so we can make more money. Uh, right. But there, there's just an absolute distrust. So uh, yeah, I mean, the the bosses are very rarely smart about uh, production operations. So it, generally, the workers know more than anybody. Right, and. Uh, I see where Cameron mentioned uh, they started organizing some city workers in a jurisdiction that prohibits public sector collective bargaining. Uh, so I know that's an uphill battle for sure. But I mean, collective that's, bargaining that's is, is not a lot of the employees in our state. Right. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, that's kind of uh, for all public sector folks here in Alabama and uh, much of the South. That's that's our reality. Uh, collective bargaining is not the end all be all. As great as it is, uh, that's, you know, you can secure some victories. You can organize without collective bargaining being an outlet. I would say it's uh, harder in some ways because even your victories are often uh, more fleeting because they're not solidified in a contract necessarily. So, you know, they lack some of the permanency and the enforcement mechanisms sometimes that you can get with a CBA victory. But that said, uh, it's totally possible. And I think some of it is just you got to be creative in some of the tactics that you're using. Well, you um, know, when you when you're organizing outside of that collective bargaining agreement, uh, that's something that the IW, IWW does a lot. Uh and it and it relies more on grassroots worker led solidarity and i mean you've seen uh what you had the teachers in west virginia the teachers in oakland over the past few years uh, yes they got collective bargaining agreements but they don't have the right to strike and uh you know they pulled it pulled it off by building those grassroots uh worker led solidarity events so um, there's there's a lot that can be done outside of the CBA. I know a lot of times when we rely on the CBA, it's a wonderful thing to have, but it's also a debit, double-edged sword because yeah. uh, you get into this, uh, let's just wait for three years. There's mm-hmm. no reason to take action now. And it lulls members into a false sense of security, uh, you know, that we can't fix anything right now or, you know, things like that. Instead of building power on the shop floor, there's a lot of things that can be done, uh, you know, as far as work to rule. I'm, and I have to be careful about what I say, especially with us coming up in the negotiations. Sure. But uh, we're all talking hypothetically, yeah. <laughs> theoretically, well, academic theoretically. discussions. Yeah. But I mean, there's 
there's there's definitely workplace slowdowns that can happen, and I'm not saying anybody should uh, skirt the rules, but we all know that going back to the to management are traditionally idiots. They write a lot of work rules that simply don't work in the on the shop floor, and if you work to those rules. In many cases, work don't get done. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's ways of applying pressure outside of a CBA. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think with the public sector, obviously at some point you have elected officials who are in your chain of hierarchy. Um, at some point, there are public meetings. Uh, involving these officials. So those are opportunities to organize around too, because, you know, while I think David and I are hundred percent on the same page in our feelings about electoral politics and, you know, it is a leverage point that you have uh, same with packing city council meetings or school board meetings or, you know, county commission meetings, whatever, you know, uh, whoever your employer may be in the public sector, yeah, probably more leverage in you know in the northeast and out west than what we see here, but uh, there's still leverage points to be. Oh there. yeah, and and I can tell you uh, from experience that you know a city council member or a school board member really doesn't expect too many people to show up to those meetings, and if even a you know a handful of the workers show up. They're suddenly, you know, looking around. They're they're whispering, trying to figure out who the people are. They're there. Why are they there? Uh, it can uh, it can start to put some pressure on them. And uh, you know, I, I did it more in the school perspective. Uh, you know, we had the Red for Ed campaigns, and you know, so you'd have twenty teachers show up to a school board meeting with their red shirt, the red union shirt some signs depending on the situation and media typically covers these meetings right Uh, unfortunately not as well as they used to um, but depending on where you're at uh, it's likely there is a reporter there and so you know again going back to like how do you organize and and gain some ground without collective bargaining you do have to be creative, and I would say that media can be a weapon uh, that you can use with it being public sector, uh, because anytime it's public sector, it's always political because it involves tax dollars, and therefore, on some level, really involves everybody uh, in the community. And that's that is also a double-edged sword uh, because it's very easy and has and and they've had great success in demonizing public sector workers over the past several decades uh and turning you know the average taxpayer quote unquote against the public sector but you know it, that adam that goes back to the same we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes 20 minutes it is generally not the public sector worker that is at fault and that's mm-hmm. something that's that's something that that the tables need to be turned on. And you can speak specifically to this coming out of the industry that you've co- that you were in. Uh, the teachers get a lot of blame for the state education, you know, in, in Alabama. How terrible the teachers are, and this and that and the other. And the, and the fact is, the teachers have very little say on on what they can do and what they can't do. And public sector workers are the same. They mm-hmm. they. 
they get beat up constantly by the public. So, say, for example, the the potholes in the street. Man, that ain't yeah. that ain't these folks' fault. It's the piss poor management in the elected positions that are killing the public sector workers. But you know, and going back to the the teachers, the teachers are the same way. They get beat up on all of this stuff, and and it's rarely they're just following the rules. Yeah, I think that's so important because, you know, the, I like the pothole example. You know, the, av- the rank and file worker who actually fills those potholes, he doesn't get to pick which potholes get fixed and which ones don't. You know, he doesn't get to pick the budget that's allocated to the department. Um, the schedule. People are driving by and they're screaming out the window, yelling at them. Why hadn't you done this? Why? And it's right. because they haven't got a choice. Right. Right. And and you're exactly right about teachers. They're just working with what they have. Uh, they don't get to pick who comes to their class. They don't get to pick uh, what materials they use necessarily. Um, and even if they do, it's only within certain restrictions uh, that they were not consulted about. Um, they certainly don't allocate the budgets. So, you know, they don't set policies around COVID and whether you wear a mask or little Johnny wears a mask. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're catching a lot of heat and a lot of, you know, vitriol, really, um, about these policies that they don't write. They don't write them. They don't pass them. They don't enforce them. Um, you know, as something the great Richard Wolf talks about uh, when he talks about class divides, he mentions the order takers and the order givers. And I can assure you that the teachers in a school, when it comes to the workplace, they are not the order givers. Uh, they may have to manage their classroom, and some of them can be pretty uh, damn tough on those kids. And they may give the kids plenty of orders, but that doesn't mean they're giving any orders around how the operations uh of the school are functioning and the same goes for any of those public sector meetings. Um, I mean, public sector workers. And uh, the follow-up comment to that was that the uh, Cameron city council gets triggered whenever activists come to city council meetings, literally calling activists terrorists, not surprised whatsoever by that. Um, As someone who's had run-ins with security guards and things of that nature at these public meetings, um, been there. I've done that. I, I know uh, exactly what you mean. It's amazing how people who work for the public on public tax dollar dime to govern the public just completely shit a brick when the public shows up to pay attention. Yeah, it's um, when their bosses show up, ain't it? Right, right. You know, how dare you as a citizen or as an employee of this city or town or, or district show up to actually pay attention? Well, that, um, speaks, that speaks a lot to uh, how how the average ordinary person has been lulled into this idea that they can't change anything and why the city council and why the government at large in general pretty much does what they want because there's no pushback on them. And mm-hmm. when there is pushback on it, all of a sudden they start calling you terrorists. You know, because you're holding them accountable for the decisions that they've made that that generally have a detrimental effect on the general society. Right. Right. Uh, You know, and it's the same kind of 
mentality, I think, between bosses and politicians, and in this case with public sector, they're kind of the same people, um, where if you dare advocate for yourself and your colleagues, that's considered disrespectful or, or disloyal. Um, I've definitely had many of supervisors throughout my career who told me that I was being disrespectful uh, for advocating for employees, um, never raising my voice, never using a cuss word, um, you know, never resorting to personal insults or anything of that nature. But to simply talk about issues um, is, is beyond the pale for, for many of these politicians and bosses. Um, I think, like you said, David, they've been so insulated. They are so used to just kind of going along and uh, without pushback. They're used to people not paying attention to what they do. So there is a lot of um, value in shining a light on their activities. Um, something that, you know, I know has been a, a, a problem like in Huntsville, Alabama, there, the city government there has really struggled with transparency, you know, and it's taken media, lawyers, grassroots activism, just to get basic like public records uh, released from city government. So, you know, it's definitely an uphill battle, but I really uh, encourage those of you who are in public sector industries, if you don't have collective bargaining, that's not the end of the world. It, it's, it's certainly possible to get some real gains and victories uh, and see what you can get solidified. If you don't, maybe you can't have something uh, enshrined in a contract, but you can maybe have an MOU. Uh, yeah, and, that, and there's no, there's never nothing that that precludes you from gaining that collective bargaining correct later on. You know that's something that that encompasses the building power aspect of of creating that worker solidarity across the uh, whatever industry you may be in. You may not have a CBA right now, but that don't mean you can't get it uh, right. through negotiations and building that power. Right. I mean, because at some point, with if you're strong enough uh, and cohesive enough, uh, the bosses may prefer <laughs> to, to sit down and, and bargain a contract with you as opposed to uh, wildcat strikes or, and whatever else you may be able to pull off if you're that strong. So I think it's all about, you know, the basics that we the, we talk about a lot, building relationships, growing the solidarity you know, taking a committee that expands outward um, and does have support amongst rank and file. All those things are true, whether you have a, a legal contract process or not, whether you have a legal strike right or not. Um, those are fundamentals that kind of go cut across industry and law, I think. Yeah. And speaking of building power and kind of pivot on to another topic, you know, to where, Look at look at what's happening in Nabisco right now. You know, you've got granted they've got a CBA, but you know they're separated. You've got folks out in uh, Washington, isn't it Washington? Yeah, from like yeah, the top so, northwest corner to yeah to Georgia, Chicago, to Georgia, and they're all they've all built those internal communications, those uh, that solidarity from workplace to work workplace, and. I mean, they're 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 giving it to them right now. 
just just this past week they voted down another contract and uh you know and, and basically a, a shit contract that was going to force regular 40 hour work pay onto the weekend to where oh. yeah exactly no. <laughs> the, to where they were splitting the shifts up they were going to move some of the shift some of the work onto the weekends no uh, premium pay and then of course the low senior em- employees and members were going to be tasked to accept that shift it's an absolute shit contract and I'm, and I'm proud to see them standing up against it yeah yeah exactly and you know sometimes people may wonder well why did they even bring that to the membership in the first place you know well I'm not there so I can't speak to you know, that specific instance, but in general, um, you know, the bargaining team has a, a, a responsibility uh, to bring to the membership whatever they can hammer out. And it's possible that people on that team that bargained that contract or that TA that they brought to the membership didn't even want to vote for it. Um, yeah, I mean, that happens, happens sometimes. Regularly. It happened, yeah. you know, it happened with us a few contracts ago with the, when they, uh, offered uh, offered up our pension, and you know you, you it's a it's a democratic voice at the end of the day. You, mm-hmm. you when when there's an offer been made, you have to bring it back to the membership and say, "Hey, what do y'all think? We think right. it's shit, but you know y- y- we're still giving you the opportunity to vote on it." Right, right. And uh, that's not to say that the opposite doesn't happen, where sometimes there's pressure to accept a, a temporary agreement. And go ahead and ratify it, even though it sucks. Sometimes, you know, there are leaders who, who will put that pressure. But I think that's why um, the having a democratic union, having more rank and file engagement and input really helps. Because if you do get to that situation where, you know what, for whatever reason, uh, your leadership team and your bargaining teams bringing you a crappy contract, you'll be strong enough to vote no and to hold the line and, and push, send them back to the table to get something better. Um, you know, so that, I think that's really, really important that even if you're not serving as an officer, you're not serving as a bargaining team member, man, you got a lot you can do to really influence the direction of the union uh, and, and really the lives of, of you and your work, fellow workers. Yep. Yeah, as we're seeing with the Carpenters uh, Union out in, uh, I believe it's, I believe that's also Washington. You know, they called for a strike this past week. There was, oh man, it's a tremendous, I think they said there was about 10,000 carpenters in this area and only about 2,600 of them were able to go on strike because the union leadership and these other locals had signed uh no no strike agreements oh. basically yeah, yeah so so you've got these carpenters the more of a the grassroots um worker led they're calling it the i think they're calling it the peter mcguire foundation basically a name after the the founder of the carpenters union and they're saying we're, we're refusing to go to work if if our brothers and sisters are on strike we should be on strike as well and uh you're seeing that tremendous labor notes as uh luis yeah uh, has has wrote a couple articles 
this past week on it. And, uh, yeah, you're seeing a string, a strong ups, upswell of workers pushing back against this. So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I had missed that story. Uh, but, yeah, I see where Louise over at Labor Notes has put out a great article there. Um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up and along with Nabisco because I knew Nabisco had still been on strike. I didn't realize that a tentative agreement had been put out recently. Yeah, so just this past, I think a couple of days ago, the, and the way they, and that's strange because, you know, we have an amalgamated contract as well where uh, Decatur, uh, Vandenberg, California, and the Cape Canaveral, we all fall under the same contract. We negotiate collectively with uh, an equal number of members from each site. But we also vote. We time our uh, CBA vote to where Vandenberg, Decatur, and the Cape is all voting at the same time. Uh, Nabisco, unfortunately, hadn't done that. They had one vote. Now, I think yesterday Chicago voted, and I don't know when Georgia votes. Uh, you know, so it kind of drags this, it drags out the answer of whether yeah. they stay on strike or not. So, yeah, I'm, I've, and I've done a lot of research the last couple of days on that, and I, and I can't get, tie that down to when uh, we'll have a, a for sure answer to whether they stay on strike or not. But reading through the articles from the labor leaders in Chicago and out there in uh, Washington, they're, they're saying they think they got the numbers no matter what. So we'll see what happens. I feel like that could probably impact uh, voter turnout and, and the vote result possibly when it's sta- uh, like segmented like that, where, yeah. Because, of course, you can talk to folks in this city and find out, okay, well, how do you think it went? How many people showed up? I'm sure you can get some info um, in, instead of you know, everybody voting at the same time. I, seems like that would probably be a better, more accurate pulse of where the membership's at if everybody does it at once. But, you know, I don't, I don't know why it's, uh, it's that particular system there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't like I say, I guess every every international has a different way of doing things. And mm. I try to stay in my lane and not, uh, you know, not demean any other uh, unions for the way they do things. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, you got practices that developed yeah. because of certain reasons in the industry or just uh, because of you know, historical precedents, things that have evolved over years, because some of these unions are, you know, a century old, um, decades old. So, yeah, I, I'm with you like that. And uh, I certainly hope that my uh, rambling on here never is interpreted as a shot at, at any particular unions or how they do things, um, because it's it's true. They most of them do things a little differently, uh, even if a lot of the big concepts are the same and. Yeah, but all yeah. of that to say, don't buy Nabisco products. You know, if if you're yeah. in the store, uh, there, man, there is a ton of uh, I, products that's made by Nabisco, and I've been my wife's had some medical issues, so I've been doing a lot of the grocery shopping uh, lately, and 
it is a nightmare <laughs> trying to go through all of these products. And I'm like, and, and here's the thing, because, and this needs to be said, it's something that irritates the shit out of me. But a lot of times you'll have a lot of people, or not a lot of people, but you'll have some people that say there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. I get that. But the point is there, there is, this is not a black and white issue. Uh, there are more ethical uh, possibilities than there are. It's not an on-off switch, uh, right? It's more nuanced than that. Yeah, and and say uh, making this statement that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism doesn't absolve you of of your duty to not cross that picket line, and that picket line is in the grocery store. As well, it's not purchasing those products when those members are out on strike. Right. I mean, if if you really need some cookies, don't buy Oreos. Uh, go to the bakery. <laughs> I mean, because I've heard that, too. And I agree with you that, no, it's not always possible to be aware of every single picket line or to be aware of every boycott. Um or maybe for whatever reason, you know, particular product is all you have available for you. But that said, we all make choices with where we spend our money. Yeah. Uh, and we all have some degree of flexibility there that if you can exercise it in a good way, I think that's a good thing to do. No, it's not, um, uh, you know, substitute for the revolution or, uh, you know, victory for these workers in particular, but it is is something that I think we can all do, and um, hopefully, you know, this show and and a lot of the other media that we support can help folks really know what is happening, so you can be aware of it. You know, if you're out here buying Nabisco products because you didn't even know they were on strike, well, you know, I wish you knew, but I, I can't hate on you too much for that. Uh, you know, me me personally, um, you know, I do try to to think about where I spend my money. That's not to say I've never bought at Amazon. Unfortunately, you know, Amazon and Walmart are monopolies and uh, it's hard to avoid them. But yeah, the, to the extent that you can honor any picket line, I think that is a really good way to use your money. What little bit we have. So do not buy it's Nabisco. Power. Yeah, exactly. And, it's, and supporting like these folks. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, and you know, su- supporting these folks, and so that hopefully, when you're in a position to call uh, a picket line yourself, they will honor you and back you up too. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just like you were saying earlier with the city council. There's there's specific pressure points that every uh, union has, and this is one of those pressure points. And you know. Part of us at being workers and building that working class solidarity is when they say, hey, don't buy these products. We're fighting for a better contract. And damn it, we don't buy these products. Uh, it's just as simple as that. And, yeah. And, and, and there's, no, there's no, don't tell, because you can't have your cookies and cream, ice cream, you know, with your Oreos mixed in. That, that ain't going to kill you for a few weeks. Let's, right. Or what, what, what it may be. Yeah, it's the and, same with buying union products. When we can buy union products, you know, uh, the Valley Labor Report's been selling hats for the past few months. Those hats were made 
in a union shop and they were made in a union shop because we know those workers had the opportunity to democratically vote on a contract that they thought benefited themselves, unlike non-union shops. So we purchase at, at, at all costs, and we know it's going to be a little bit higher. We're going to pay a little bit more, but you know what? Those workers have had a say in their, in their workplace, and it's good to support that type of, uh, of movement. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Uh, and I've been shocked number of, I, well, maybe I shouldn't say shocked, uh, but I've been disappointed at the number of progressive organizations and even labor unions themselves who do not buy uh, union products. Sorry, having a little bit of trouble with my mic here, but. No, you're uh, coming through great. Okay, cool. Yeah, but I mean, I've, I've seen that where these uh Nonprofits, uh, NGOs, and yeah, sometimes unions themselves, you know, they're, they're going to go buy a bunch of T-shirts with their brand on it, and they don't even make sure that it's, it's, union, uh, it's union made. Yep. Seems like an easy thing to do. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things that surprised me most was the first AFL-CIO conference in the state, state AFLs, uh, that I attended – there were probably 75 to 100 politicians that came in, a majority Democrat politicians asking for our vote, for our endorsement. And they all had business cards. They all had handbills. They all had flyers. Uh, out of that whole group, to the best of my knowledge, there was only one that actually had union-made business cards. And at, it, ju- it was appalling to see these folks come into a union hall and ask for our endorsement while using scab products. Uh, and Judge Vance, I'll, I'll call him out by name because he was the only one that I recall that had a union business card with him. That's that seems like such an easy thing, right? I, I mean, you're going to the state union convention. You know, folks are going to look. You know, it, I, but I think that is a uh, evidence, I guess, of how little uh, you know lo- union labor means to so many politicians and so many folks who who say they're on our side. It's one thing to talk about; it's another thing to be about it with your own resources and, and finances. And, um, you know, I, I, I know folks who, who've worked for these organizations who are given these limited budgets. And, and when they bring up this issue, it's like, oh, well, I guess you'll just get less T-shirts, <laughs> you know, uh, which puts that that worker in a bad position. Do I, you know, let my job suffer, quote unquote, uh, just for trying to honor our values by having union made products? Shouldn't be that way. Well, that should be a you said that should be it, common policy. Yeah, well, you made the perfect statement and and the and use the perfect word. Our values that should be our values. You know, it's not something that you just throw away because oh well, I can get a hundred more business cards if I use uh, mm-hmm. some scab shop. You know, this is about the values of the working class, and and it's important to us as union members to see 
people that say they're going to support us to do that. Because yeah. there's a big difference between coming into a, a into a AFL meeting and saying, We're, I'm here to support you. And then you look at their card and you say, well, why didn't you choose one of the easiest ways to support us? Buying union products. If, if you can't do that, then I can guarantee for the rest of the two or four years that you're going to be in office, we can't count on you. Right. Right. I mean, it's in their interest to do this. Because you may suck as a politician, but guess what? Who The workers who made that card for you are going to at least know that you cared enough to, to get your card made there. Um, yeah, I think that's a that is a easy way we can be intentional um, as supporters of the labor movement and as you know, working class folks. Are we using our own money to that uh, effect and are we? pressuring politicians and others to actually use their money to that effect as well. Uh, David, there were a couple of local things I did want to mention before we uh, wrapped up today. Um, Because uh, some of them are are sort of continuations of of bigger issues that we've discussed before. And we've talked a lot about the, you know, staffing shortages and the you know whining and complaining from business owners on the local news about you know how they can't find anyone who wants to work supposedly. Now keep in mind Alabama the long ago ended extra pandemic unemployment benefits uh, and has seen no change in unemployment job applications or any of the data. Uh, but that aside, we see these stories a lot. And we've seen these stories pop up uh, at the local level, too. No matter where you're tuning in from, chances are you've probably seen it there, too. Um, And this just this week uh, here in Huntsville, WFF aired a story talking about nurses at Huntsville Hospital. And those of you not in the area, Huntsville Hospital has kind of become a monopoly of sorts. All the local um, hospitals have all pretty much been bought out by them, uh, even in nearby counties. And uh, so you had these two interesting articles that came out on different outlets on different days, but in the same week. One of them talked about Huntsville Hospital setting up a foundation, raising money for their employees who are, quote unquote, heroes. Uh, The other one, though, talked about uh, the actual working conditions and you had anonymous nurses, you know, they protected their identity uh, for fear of uh, reprisal, uh, but they described unsafe working conditions, short staffing, uh, the the all the extra hazard and stress that uh, all of that causes, plus, you know, the pandemic itself and they're dealing with all those things and they're getting low pay even by the standards of, you know, this region, uh, which is certainly not the wealthiest in the country. So you have this disconnect between, you know, employers like Huntsville hospital who want to call their folks heroes. They want to, you know, bring cake and balloons to the fact, you know, to the lounge, the staff lounge, but they don't want to actually do anything on a material basis for the workers. And one of the nurses actually said in this article that the hospital management should be fearful of a strike. And I thought that was interesting 
they don't have a union in uh, Huntsville Hospital, as far as we are aware. So I think that's uh, pretty important that they would even mention that. Uh, I do think it's important that nurses have a union. And in this case, where looks like they don't, at least not yet, uh, I hope that they are really organizing collectively to try to address those issues they discuss, because that would, could also be the beginning of a union. Uh, and I hope it will be. But I thought that was interesting, though. We've seen these you know, stories all across the country and you know, had a little bit of a local flavor to it as well with the nurses. Uh, there was a similar story a couple of weeks back, but this time it was the cafeteria workers on Huntsville City Schools. That one's uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, someone who used to represent those workers, I can tell you those are some of the hardest working ladies uh, in the school district. They do one of the most essential jobs, not just in our schools, but in our communities, because so many of our kids don't get fed without their work. Um, but despite that, they typically are the lowest paid employees in the school district. And they were dealing with similar issues to the nurses in that uh, safety concerns, low pay, short staffing. In their case, I, I can tell you, I know personally, uh, some management bullying. And all of that has been amplified by the pandemic and as well as the practice of privatization um, that we've discussed before, where government public sector jobs are outsourced to temporary staffing agencies. Uh, and so you have public funds going to profit uh, private uh, interests, profitable private interests who provide the labor instead of the you know, city or the school district hiring it themselves. You know, and in the case of these cafeteria workers, what that means uh, on a material basis is that they don't have state health insurance or a state retirement pension or the state due process rights that you get when you are employed directly by the school district. You know, and for all the inadequacies of all three of those areas I just mentioned, uh, it's a hell of a lot better than not having it at all. Uh, and surprise, surprise, they have a hard time recruiting people to work for these staff agencies for low pay, no benefits, and no protection. So those were a couple of the big, uh, you know, staffing shortage stories at the local level. Uh, there were a couple of other things that have happened lately, um, primarily discussing, uh, you know, the city of Huntsville, their transparency issues, the criminal justice issues. I think I actually want to do kind of a, a separate conversation about that. Um, might just pop in later this week and do, do a little small uh, live stream to talk about that, um, especially some of the Officer Darby um, case intrigue that has continued, even after his uh, guilty conviction. Um, so let's, if you're, let's if you're interested... This pri sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, this go whole ahead. Zoom thing back and forth is is the timing's a, a nightmare. <laughs> but yeah. Let's talk about this private privatization of public services because that what you're talking about with cafeteria workers is, as you well know, this is not the the first time that politicians mm -hmm. talk about we're going to save money by privatizing privatizing public services and on its face is laughable 
there anytime you privatize a per public service right now those cafeteria workers that are employed publicly whether they be in another state or in our state they are being paid by taxpayer dollars there's no one profiting off of that service except for those workers when you privatize that any industry you're bringing in multi-level managers. You're bringing in the owner, possibly uh, shareholders, stakeholders, uh, CEOs, different things like that. Everybody's getting a cut. Right. But generally, the CEOs and the managers are getting the, the lion's share of the cut. So the workers are getting less. People that actually don't do the work are getting paid more and that is the privatization of public services it's it's rarely about saving money it's about shifting this work over to one of the legislators or the council city councilors buddies so they can profit off of this business and make money off the taxpayer dollars it's as simple as that and people need to keep that in mind it is yeah. never about saving money. It's all about someone enriching themselves off the, and they constantly talk about freeloaders here. You know, in the, in the past few months, all we've heard about is people unwilling to work because unemployment's so high. They're freeloaders. The freeloaders in this society and in, in our economy are the managers and the CEOs who do no work and profit off of our work. It's as simple as that. There, There is no other conversation to be had. Either you work or you don't. And if you don't work, if you're one of those managers, if you're one of those CEOs, one of those CFOs, and that's you, your whole job is to take a paycheck and do nothing, then you are a freeloader. Simple as that. Yeah. Exactly. And, and like you said, it is kind of it, it should be laughable on its face, because what you're asking me to believe is that you are going to save money by inserting middlemen. Now, <laughs> where in our experience does that ever actually work, where the more middlemen you put in there uh, in a transaction, the more money you save? Um yeah, well, it's just I mean, totally. It, it saves money as far as it takes money out of the workers' pockets. pockets that's actually doing the work and transfers it up to the wealthy. It it is it is no more than a shift of wealth from us to them. And 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 you can look for the last year and a half, two years through this pandemic, and look at. The top, the bottom one percent, and the top nine—I uh, mean, the top one percent and the bottom ninety-nine percent—and look at whose wages has increased, and look at whose wages has either remained stagnant or decreased. This is a tremendous shift, and it has been all through the last forty years of this neoliberal shit is taking money out of our pockets and enriching the wealthy, taking money away from the workers. And, and putting it to those to that work. Yeah, I, I, you're exactly right. And I think this has been one of their weapons is this privatization because, you know, they're taking money from workers. They're taking money from the public treasury. 
Um, they're sabotaging state services. And so they all that all plays into their hands uh, because the, uh, you know, the more they can sabotage the services, the easier it is to gain support for more privatization. Right. And the next uh, layer of workers they're going to screw over and the next contract they're going to get uh, with public tax dollars. That that's one of the key weapons that they've used through this neoliberal era you mentioned uh, is the more they can sabotage state services like public schools, like trash collection, like, you know, road construction, whatever it may be. They want to intentionally make it worse from the inside so they can direct funds inside out to their external private pockets. Um, and the people who suffer from that or are the workers involved, uh, because that's where any savings are coming from, is from screwing them over and taking it out of their, their paychecks and benefits and from the broader community, uh, because at the end of the day, you're going to get inferior services, uh, whatever that may be. So. You know, and I think that has absolutely been one of the key ways that this uh, skyrocketing wealth and inequality has played out. And while so many people think it's uh, it's basically impossible for us to change it. Right. Because we've been trained to believe that the, there are no alternatives, that this is just the way it's got to be. You know, you, you can't do good things with government. Uh, government's the bad guy. Uh, you can't provide more wealth to the bottom, you've got to give it to the top because that's the job creators. Those are the people, you know, that are creating jobs, creating the wealth of our economy. And and everything about it is completely bass backwards. Um, you know, and I, I hope, if nothing else, that coming out of this crisis of the pandemic and a time where really we had never resolved the 2008 crisis, we are still living in the shadow of the Great Recession. Here we are uh, with yet another recession, with yet more bailouts, more you know money just printed freely for those at the top, uh, while most folks are struggling to make ends meet. I hope that it has been a wake-up call. And when we see the reports of these new union campaigns and these strike activities, it does make me feel... A little bit warm and fuzzy that, you know, maybe that is the case and that more and more working people are starting to see uh, how we're getting screwed, who's doing the screwing and how we can make it stop. Yeah, well, certainly these nurses, to circle back around to what you was talking about earlier, certainly these nurses are seeing it. And right. I've, I've done some research on this the past few months. And if you, you know, it's a surprise to Jacob when I sent it to him the other week. If you look at what's happened in, in the hospitals, the, with, of course, the, the hospitals are full. The nurses are getting screwed. I'm, I'm sure there's more people. You know, we constantly talk about the nurses, but there's people that have to clean these beds. There's people that have to fix the food. There's people that mm-hmm. have to mop the floors. There's an entire multi. There's a lot of labor. Layer. Yeah, there's multi layers of labors that labor that is involved in in maintaining these hospitals and keeping people healthy. The nurses have not gotten any pay raises one of the one of the key issues in birmingham the other week that we saw at uab was in one specific icu nurse uh 
group. Let's call it uh, a group. They got a dollar increase in their pay. No one else got anything. The hospital or the administration are pitting workers one against the other to keep these wages low, to keep from having to pay uh, what should be the lion's share of of the income that's coming in because there's, yeah, you see a doctor, you know, maybe once a day for five minutes, but these nurses are doing 99% of the work. They're getting almost, I mean, it's sickening the pay that they're getting. And then you have the state through Governor Ivey and the legislation that has sunk $12 million just this past year in our taxpayer dollars to pay private out-of-state nurses to come into these hospitals and these out and and look i'm not i'm not demeaning these travel nurses they're if i was in the same situation i I, you know if i'm making have the opportunity to make 70 80 dollars an hour i'm going to take it oh yeah of course but what they're doing is uh they're artificially killing the nurses in uh, in in our state at the cost of tax uh, taxpayer dollars so they're they're basically subsidizing all of these out of state nurses to come in paying them extremely high wages and it's it's killing the nurses in our state they're not getting anything extra and and they're and they're working right alongside these same people and it's a travesty it's an absolute travesty and they can't and they act like they can't figure out why they can't retain retain these nurses well they can't retain them because they're not invested in the workforce in the state we have a, a tremendous workforce in this state that you could take that money and instead of paying people three to four times the average salary of what we pay in our state, you could increase those wages, show the appreciation to the nurses that we have in this state, and retain them. But no, they're paying this, you know, and it goes back to the same thing. These travel nurses aren't independent contractors. They're working through agencies. Agencies are getting a cut out of this. Same thing as temp worker agencies. So I, I guess to, to kind of tie everything together under this privatization of public services, it's, they're doing the same thing even in this. The, the state government is subsidizing out-of-state nurses instead of investing in people that are going to stay, that live in our state and are going to stay in this state once this pandemic has subsided enough that, you know, all the other nurses go back to wherever they came from. We're not benefiting anything from it. Right. How much of that 12 million could have been kept right here inside of our borders versus with this practice? How much of that 12 million dollars is leaving the state of Alabama to go to the agency uh, to be sent back home? when these workers return home from wherever they're coming from. I don't blame those nurses one bit. I do blame uh, Governor Ivey and the hospital administrators for their lack of action on this. And yeah, for 
this is a problem they have facilitated, a problem they've created, and now they're dividing uh, and pitting different types of workers against each other. Uh, but you're exactly right. I would have much rather seen that $12 million stay to our folks that we have right here. That money would have been spent right in our community. Uh, yeah, well, this would have helped. The sacrifice, sacrificing. That has and, been sacrificing right. for the These are our neighbors. Exactly. They're the so ones I, we're going to count on once all the other nurses have left. And they're the exactly. ones that we're just absolutely pissing off and causing them to go to other industries because they, they're not showing the support that they should be shown. Because one day this pandemic will end and we'll still need nurses in Alabama. Yeah, Twitter, but I've got a member. He's 25 years old. He was married a month ago to a 23-year-old young lady. Both of them caught COVID, possibly at the at the wedding. It's hard to say. She's 23, no health problems. She's been on a ventilator for the last week and a half, two weeks. They took her off two days ago. She couldn't breathe on her own. They've got her back on the ventilator now. This is a 23-year-old young lady. Mm. This virus is really affecting people. You know, it's a coin toss. Uh, you may get it bad. You may not get it bad. But I'll implore you, especially, you know, those folks in that age group, go out and get the vaccine. You know, there's... There's no reason to have loss of life and for people in their 20s. It's, I mean, for no loss of life at all. But, it, but the problem is you see a lot, of, especially in my uh, workplace, I've got a lot of healthy folks in that age group that say there's no reason for me to get the vaccine because I'll get over it. Well, you but know. But maybe you there's, won't. Yeah. There's, a, there's, there's two families now that are suffering because of just one dumb mistake, yeah. you know, that could have been easily fixed. And I'm not saying that would have kept her from getting COVID, but it's a good possibility it would have kept her off of a ventilator. God, well, I, I am glad you brought that up, but I really hate to hear that. And I definitely echo that message. And believe me, you're, ta- you're looking at two people who, uh, regardless of what your politics may be, I can pretty much assure you that uh, the two of us on this talk uh, are more skeptical of the government and the media than uh, anyone else who may be tuning in. Uh, You're going to be hard pressed to find folks more skeptical than us of authority. Um, But I am fully vaccinated. Uh, My wife is fully vaccinated. Um, We've had our share of COVID scares. We had COVID last uh, fall when school started. My wife was, you know, he- perfectly healthy, 31-year-old who was uh, taken down, I mean, in, in severe pain, uh, crying just to make it up the stairs or to change clothes because her whole body broke out in, in hives uh, from head to toe, and she got it at school. Um, and they had to shut her school down at the time. That was pre-vaccine. Uh, so I am thankful we have vaccines available encourage folks to get it uh, and to use some common sense the best you can, uh, because, yeah, there's enough that we have that we're all dealing with um, besides this virus. So, you know, my thoughts are out to those um, 
folks of yours out your your neck of the woods. I, I hope that both of them end up okay, uh, and I hope nobody else ends up in that situation uh, needlessly. Uh, but no, I, I didn't have anything else uh, beyond that. I think that's a fine place to end. Um, I appreciate all the folks who have been uh, continuing to just send us kind words uh, throughout this whole weird period of our show. Uh, We will be back to full strength and full speed at some point down the road, um, hopefully sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, you know, we'll, we'll continue to do what we can to, to bring you some updates about the labor movement and really uh, encourage you to, to stay tuned to us, share our stuff, check out some of the older interviews and and segments that you may have missed. Um, I know that, you know, David and Jacob did some really cool, interesting stuff well before I even got on the show. Um, so there's a lot out there. And uh, I think that's really all I have. Uh, appreciate everybody who's been uh, participating and, and hopefully you uh, will stick with us next time. Solidarity, brother. Solidarity to you, to everyone listening. Y'all have a great Saturday and a great weekend. <laughs>